the role of a producer. And I thought you should talk about a flip-flop records t-shirt, John, first. Oh, yeah, sorry, that's that there. Nick's got a nice. flip-flop records t-shirt. Doesn't it Thanks look nice? To Scott Milligan. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, it was really... Feel free, anybody else, to send me uh, merchandise. I was like, Secret Faces got really happy when I was wearing their t-shirt on the podcast. So if you do yeah. want to send us merch, we'll gladly wear it. Although he sent me my own merch, not his merch. <laughs> this, is, this is even better. Could really do with a couple of session recall ones, John. So we're talking about production, John. Yeah, we're talking about production and your flip-flop record t-shirt. And also, the yeah. Whips has a vocals on endorsement. We haven't mentioned that in a while. We haven't mentioned that in a while, no. Even though he's kind of semi-retired from the music business, he's still got his vocal zone um, endorsement. I think he's got a lifetime supply. So, so production. Yes, on production. So the angle we were going to kind of go from it was, well, are there mm-hmm. different roles of producers? Are there different types of producers that you've encountered when you've been in yeah. the studio? So many different roles. I mean, you get, you know, we see it all the time. We have people come and work with us straight out of university and or we get applications and on the applications say i'm a record producer you know if they're making music even just in their bedrooms and releasing music and putting music together themselves then yeah they're producing music they're a record producer but i think when they're kind of telling you this they're they're saying that their role within our company should be a record producer because they are a record producer when there's so much more involved in that and i've worked with all different levels and styles and types of producer over the years so it's really hard to say you're a record producer in a kind of working sense of the of the words because you know so my role as a producer it, i don't know we've just done the nada surf album and um, which i'm co-producing with ian lawton and so the role of the producer on that is not just making the music, doing the pre-production. Ian's been doing all the pre-production as, a, as his role as one of the producers and the rehearsals. And then there's the organisation because they're spread out. One lives in um, Texas, one is in Florida, one is in Ibiza, one is in Cambridge in England. So as a producer, you're involved in the itinerary of everybody and the logistics of getting everyone here. So that's booked by... You know, they've got management, so the management help and all that, but the management need to know where they need to be when they need to be there. So the role of producers putting that together, you know, and then helping with booking the flights, how they're going to get from the airport to the studio, where do they need to go? Everyone arrived at different times. So it was like, how can we, you know, we can't just afford to send cars to four different airports or whatever and hire cars because it's just going to eat into the budget. So it was the logistics of that. So how the session's going to run, how do you make the most of the time, the money, the budget, also, the producers in charge of the budget. So, how much is the studio? How much is the session musicians? Are we having strings? Who's mixing it? Well, where's it being mixed? Who's mastering it? How much are the flights? How much is the cars? How much is the petrol? Food budget every day. So, the producers really doing all that, and that's something maybe that you're not really being taught. Why you're being taught to be a producer in music college or uni? I think it's getting better. I think part of the business they they touch on that now, and they do teach you a little bit more than that, but certainly they never used to. So there's that role of producer a bit more in the sense of um, the film world where a producer would put together the whole team, the studios, be in charge of the budgets, go and get the money from wherever they're getting the money from and then put the team together, which is what a producer also does. It's put the right engineer for the project, the right mix engineer, mastering engineer, make sure you're going to the right studio. There's no point going to Rockfield if you, you're going to make a dance record and need loads of, you need to use Logic and loads of plugins and, you know, that kind of record. You wouldn't go you wouldn't go somewhere like Rockfield. So no. picking the right studio. Also, take a look at what the band are like, how much their budget is. And putting the whole thing together, start to finish, and seeing it through from the, the 
the point of concept of it to delivering it to the label or delivering it to the artist. There's many, many roles. So, and that takes a lot of skill and organization itself, a lot of time, but that is your role as a, as a producer as well. And the label do that and the management, but as we know, a lot of the bands we work with now don't have management, don't have labels. A lot of bands do it themselves. So you're involved in that. And that's kind of always, when I've worked with big producers over the years, they're, they're heavily involved in that side of it from, you know, someone like Roy Thomas Baker went on tour with the darkness before the album and kind of really immersed himself in the the world of the band and what they sounded like. And then all the pre-production and the writing sessions. But then there has been producers who maybe don't do any of that. They have managers themselves and maybe their managers will take care of that. And they literally just concentrate on the music, which I've been involved when I've co-produced stuff. Then so like with Nada Surfian is taking care of all the logistics side of it and all the band side of it. And I'm taking care of all the music side of it. So my role is predominantly just the the music and Ian is the day-to-day running of it, how the sessions are going to flow, making sure everyone's aware of what they're doing all the time. But yeah, I've worked with lots of producers who don't get involved in that kind of thing, or maybe they used to, but don't now, and loads who do. And then there's producers who aren't even in the room much because they may be just overseeing the session, overseeing the music. They've put the whole thing together and now they're confident the whole thing there's a great engineer in the studio there's great session musicians on it on there they've got everyone to the studio they're working on the budget in their room or office or whatever and they're still working on the next session like booking the studio for mixing or booking string players or something and they're just popping and out the studio and oversee the whole thing because all their kind of hard work and the pre-production part is already done so then it's just making sure everything is running smoothly as it should and then there's other producers who are there every minute of the day heavily involved doing um, everything along with the engineer or maybe they're engineering themselves like me and you would do yeah so yeah lots of different lots of different roles and has the role of a producer changed over the years i guess with the with i mean the producer always kind of did all those things but now with less labels and less management companies around or less less artists being signed to labels and management companies, then maybe the producer has to do a lot more of that organizational stuff when you're working with the band. Because the bands just want to concentrate on making making a record, making the best record they can. So you're brought in as a producer because he knows us, he can organize everything, he knows our budget, and he'll make sure that record gets delivered on time and on budget and work well with that band. You know, I mean, your feet, you're obviously more involved in the kind of lecturing, teaching world, and colleges and uni, so. How much time do you see devoted to that side of being a producer? I think it's it's a really difficult it's a really difficult position because there's that element where you've got the definition of producers also changed. So you've also got like the the producer in terms of like electronic music, like dance music. Yeah. So people will be coming going, I'm a producer, and what they're doing is obviously producing beats and stuff, but they've never had any experience in the studio, and it can't that kind of gets mixed up i suppose we're obviously the traditional path where there's like you know and there's like the pathway from working as an assistant to engineer that might have worked from obviously like yourself from the 90s and maybe early 2000s and stuff that's kind of going away a little bit from Mm -hmm. like the education side of things i think a lot of it most of the time is trying to get people up to speed on how to like you know like the first year might be just getting them up to speed on recording like this is like these are microphones it's like a, a way to set up drums and stuff but like mm-hmm. the, most of the time it's just trying to get them to like get in the habit of recording and working with other people you know for the final project they might you might be producing one or two people but you can normally see with like the students who kind of coming in the ones who are in there 24 7 
they're obsessed with everything and they don't want to leave they're the ones who think well they, they probably have a shot at it but then there's also i think i i, I don't know if I'm gonna, this is going to actually end up in the cup but i know ramesh ramesh quit uni after the first year after the first term mm-hmm. i don't think he ever graduated i don't know but i remember him quitting because i was, I was mates with him when he went to uni yeah. and it's just because he's like well i've got i've got the studio at home i'm not really learning anything i might yeah. as just carry on doing what i'm doing and like the studios in like South Wales at the time, or Glamorgan as it was, um, it's good, but it wasn't, you know, like he had better stuff at home. Yeah. And when you come into a studio and work on actual sessions, then you learn so much more. You're kind of fast tracked through the whole process, working with other professionals, working with more artists, doing it day in, day out. You know, it's, it's nice to have that qualification and to learn some technical aspects, but he, someone like Ramesh would have already been up to speed on all that he would have known how to use everything so switched on just a natural at do so yeah was he going to learn more in that in that classroom environment or was he going to learn more working with these bands yeah and i think i think i'm pretty sure he got to shadow greg haver as well for a bit yeah i'm pretty sure he kind of came in and he'd like you know shadowing always... producers like that that's 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 worth you know waiting gold yeah, i have to if message go Ramesh on... about this and just double check <laughs> yeah if you can go up go and work with someone like greg haver or even go and work with Ramesh now and shadow him that's when you're going to learn more than you can learn in a, you know, do a few weeks of that. You'll learn a, year, a year's worth of a course. Yeah. Um, and it's still- but there's, you know, they're trying to change it. Like speaking to to Adam in, in um, Bridge End, and he's trying to write these things into the new course there, the degree course, the music business side of it, the roles of producers and things like that. So it's, and it's definitely getting better. If we go back, say, 10 years, there's also been, I think, a transition in terms of the people who are teaching it. Some of the people have come yeah. in and obviously had the experience of working. So I know in BIM in Brighton for a while, so Dan Swift, who worked on like Snow Patrol Records, he yeah. was working as a producer, and then he went and obviously did some lecturing with Bruce in in BIM, yeah, um, and then went back to being full time producer. And so it's like you get like people coming in, and obviously the other thing you're trying to do is when we're in the education side of things, is you're trying to bring in people to talks and stuff and say, well, like this is what it's like, yeah. rather than I think maybe go back ten years or maybe a bit more. Where... It wasn't like it. We used to get people, and they just didn't know. And they'd done three years at uni, they didn't know anything, you know. And I think I might talk this up before when we had. Uh, Alex at Leaders Farm and um, a friend of his, Paul, who were on a course in Cambridge. And they just came to the studio initially just for work experience. And they were saying they hadn't been taught any of these things. They had no idea that this was actually how you made a record. And I'm thinking, this is a degree course these guys are doing. And they really switched on. And they were like, we're telling our lecturer how you make records. We're mm-hmm. going back and telling him. And he's asking us, what do they do? And because the, their lecturer had gone to uni, done the course, then done his teaching degree. And now he's teaching these kids how to make records, yet he'd never been in a studio. He'd never been a producer and engineer, never made a record, never been in a studio. And he was teaching them. And I thought that was really odd. And we were seeing it time and time again, people coming to us for a month and saying, I've learned more in my month than I have in three years on my uni course. But when the industry changed and wasn't as much work and the money wasn't around for all the producers and engineers, you've got all these great producers, engineers around, and they've made their way into um, the teaching world, you know, which is a great thing for the youngsters coming through, a great thing for the unis and the colleges, because now most of them are made up with professionals who've been there, done it, made records, ex-musicians, ex-producers, mm. ex-engineers, ex-record company people who know the industry, know what you need to do, know what's involved. So it's massively improved now, but you still can't be being there on the ground in the studio working with um, great producers and so you know you know when you started like we mentioned a bit about like the hands-off 
approach. And then I remember recently, have you seen like the Rick Rubin clips? Where, like the interviews and stuff. Where obviously, like Rick, Rubin, uh, Rick Rubin's going like, "Oh, have you ever? Do you know how to use a desk?" Like, nope, no idea. Don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. And obviously, his like approach is obviously he's what well, I suppose you call it music fan, and yeah. he's got a very good gut feeling about yeah. music. And obviously, he he has like, obviously he has people to kind of do it. Yeah, I mean, he's just amazing at putting together the right package for that artist. You know, the right people involved working on it, the right studios, the right like say a music fan loving the music. Yeah, and there's our producers who come in who aren't who aren't technical, who don't do anything on the desks, don't do anything on the Pro Tools, don't know how to do any of that stuff. But musically, they're just switched on and they've just put the, together the whole thing and they're in charge of the whole thing. Yeah, but do you need to? Not necessarily. If you're, I mean, we we do because at a necessity because we can't afford an engineer, so we do the kind of whole thing. So we've had to learn to do that. And then no one taught me how to use Pro Tools. I had to use it because there was no money to get a programmer. Yeah. So had to use it. But someone like that need to know those things? No. If you make a great record with a great team, then you don't need to. That's his role. That's what he does. He puts together the people. I mean, I told the story before where he didn't even come to the session. I engineered for Rick Rubin. Um, just called me from his house every day, asked if everything was going well. And he was like, you know, at the end of the day, don't need to be there. You're in Rockfield, great studio. You've got Nigel Kennedy on the strings, great violin player. You're a great engineer to record it. Why do I need, why do I need to be there? I've put you lot together. Just do your thing. Um, I was wondering, have we talked about that on the podcast? I'm not sure. Maybe <laughs> you have now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just great. I just got to speak to him once a day. That was it. Talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it was on a Donovan record. Donovan never came either. Donovan was like, "Why do I need to go?" It's Nigel Kennedy in Rockfield with Nick Bryan. That's like, it. Everything's fine. Yeah, why do we need the to? Only, why the we only need thing to be is, is, like, you know, when you just get left to do it, you, you kind of start second guessing yourself sometimes. It's like, well, do they? Is it? Is this what they want? Do you like? How do you, I mean this? How do you send the files over to them to listen to? Is it playing it down the phone? Was it? Well, we were on tape. Yeah, we were on tape. So uh, no, because Rick's Rick's role was right. We need strings on this record. You know, who's gonna kind of do the right job on this? And at the time, Nigel Kennedy's like one of the most famous kind of violinists in the world. Yeah, um, and still is. Um, Nigel worked out of Rockfield a lot. He did a lot of stuff there who's a good engineer who's used to recording that kind of stuff at Rockfield with like, you know, and that was me. So then you go, no, I mean, you know, he brought in, I just wanted to meet him. I just thought he was coming. We all thought he was coming, but then I didn't have to, you know, recorded lots of violins. Rockfield got great mics going through great pre's. Nigel will tell me if his violin doesn't sound right to him. So he'll say, and Nigel will know the Rockfield mics and he, you know, we talked about it and he's like, yeah, well, we usually use this and we usually use that. So, and we gave them like four choices or something. Yeah. But we we're on tape. So we couldn't just upload files for them to check. Well, um, even until what, maybe a couple of years ago, you couldn't upload files in Rockfield very no, quickly. No, not unless you went down to Costa Coffee <laughs> used that and borrowed their Wi-Fi. But then I was like, I've just got to record this and make sure all the mics are working and you know, there's no noise and it's captured nicely and keep, make Nigel comfortable. That's it. Keep, you know, keep Nigel aware when we're recording, what we're doing. Yeah. Make sure it's all recorded nicely. Make sure it's all labelled nicely on the track sheets, on the tape boxes. And in the day, do I need to tell Nigel Kennedy what to play or, you know, if it was any good? No. no. Nigel Kennedy knows if he played well and if the parts are good. So Nigel scored all the parts and then played them like yeah. like the genius he is. And then we sent the tapes back. We just got a note to say thanks very much. Everything's great. And that, that was that. Pretty sure the credit says on the album, 
that uh, strings produced and arranged by Rick Rubin, <laughs> even though the strings were kind of produced and arranged by Nigel Kennedy and uh, recorded by me. But I think I got a recorded credit, but uh, I'm kind of producing it as well. Yeah. So, you know, but who, who cares? It was a chance to get, you know, yeah. work on a Donovan record and do something for Rick. Yeah, as I say, some who just aren't technical and don't get involved in any site, they don't want to get involved in the technical no. side of it. There's also kind of there's, there's an element as well. As like I remember um, Gil Norton, Hmm. came up through tape and then obviously you got to obviously producing like the pixies and stuff and it's mm-hmm. very very good and professional on tape and knows what he likes and is a very very good like he's very good with relationships he's very good at obviously directing bands and as we talked about when he came to Leeds as well we did like demos and stuff with the band for the first day hmm. and spends a lot of time pre-production but he always has an engineer now i think working for him on like for protocol side because obviously learning that whole aspect that's going to take away from his focus and time from the music from the music yeah, and the producing. So it's just like, well, it'd be easier. You can still make great records without having to use a computer, yeah. as long as you've got someone there to do it. Yeah, but when it was all coming in, he was making big records. So there was budgets for yeah. engineers, you know, and um, there was budgets for always getting engineering. Whereas I was in a position where all of a sudden the record companies were saying, right, the budget on this, we haven't got a budget for a producer, engineer, and a programmer. We've got a budget for one person to do all three. So, and of course, I knew I had to learn it. Because yeah. I was an engineer as well as a producer. I was engineering for Rockfield and producing for Rockfield and for myself as well. And I wanted to learn. Um, and Owen, who I was working with when we first used it, he didn't know how to use it. He didn't have any training. We were just sat there and we got to learn this. We need to learn this now and fast because we're going to be using this from now on. Because for Owen, having un- like virtually unlimited tracks was like a godsend. Um, and not being able to record over anything at six o'clock in the morning when you're absolutely off your head was another godsend. <laughs> um, so we were like, we better learn this quick. And then, yeah, luckily I was built the studio for Gwigsy from Oasis. And he was like, what are we going to put in it? I was like, we've got to put Pro Tools in it. These are the triple eight ones, the eight eight eights. Actually, um, yeah. So the triple eights and then went to, went, eventually went to the, the 192s. Yeah. But the triple eights. And so he put a Pro Tools rig in. We got that um, Technical Earth, uh, Fredo there, got us sorted up um, with all that stuff, put that in his studio that I put together with him. And it was great because I could sit in that studio then all day, all night when we weren't recording stuff because the bands were coming in and there was no tape in that studio. It was just Pro Tools. So I got kind of really proficient on it pretty quick. And that was, that was a massive help having that rig to, to be able to use every day. I mean, before that, people used to hire them in from FX Rentals and it was a massive cost, you know. In terms of, say, like, with, with Owen, and obviously, like, we haven't really talked about the Oasis session. I know we're going to talk about, like, and I haven't like an Oasis episode or whatever, but um, Owen and Noel's relationship. Hmm. Was Owen acting as, like, producer? Was Noel co-producing? Because I know, obviously, Noel had a vision for the records. Yeah, so, yeah, they're co-producing together because, you know, a lot of the time Noel's not there when, say, some of the others are doing their parts or whatever, but they are massive conversations and about how the record should sound and how it should go. And, but also just going with the flow, you know, knowing that Owen's going to get the best out of everybody and um, be creative and Noel knows what, what he wants and obviously writes amazing songs and um, is brilliant in the studio, you know, and Noel had mentors and would listen to other, to other people that he liked and i know he took a lot from weller and stuff about how to make records and he'd been around the business and he just knew how to make records but um, owen was yeah doing his thing his kind of way of recording his style of recording which is why he was brought in so yeah that really you know worked well as a co- co-production thing and of course they had really good management and the label and owen had management so there was plenty of people to do all the organizing 
and it was like to tell everyone you just need to turn up there because I don't think you could leave that entirely to uh to, to Owen really we were busy making records <laughs> you know staying up all night yeah but I mean brilliant I mean he's a great you know great producer and he's in, in, and a great engineer as well because he's got such you know, the ideas in his head so he rather than rely on someone else all the time to get that out. And obviously the more I worked with him, the more I knew what he wanted and how to do that and how to yeah. get this, what he had in his head out of him. So it came um, super easy in the end. Yeah, that was a really good relationship, getting getting their thoughts across. There wasn't really any clashes, maybe the odd thing about who should do this or who should do that and the odd thing. But yeah, pretty pretty seamless, really. One of the things I think I've noticed, it's related to the difference between the artists who possibly came up through tape and the people who came up with computers. Mm-hmm. and i suppose it's also links in with having the ability to have as many takes and as many tracks as you need and it's like knowing when something isn't working making decisions and also just say oh yeah that's we've got the take i think sometimes especially if we go back to the original you know like the original discussion sometimes obviously like everyone you've always gone for a safety take or like oh, i just need another one just in case and it's like kind of moved away i've moved yeah. away from that now it's like no i know we've got it and it's too easy in, isn't it to do that and it's too easy to over edit everything to think you've got to you know make everything perfect really, and then yeah there's no character in it yeah but it comes through with experience and i think someone like working with someone like luke morley who's a great great producer who just knows and he grew up obviously in the days of tape and working with great producers making their um thunder records He's brilliant at knowing when to leave something and when you need to redo something. And like, you know, someone go, oh, should we do it again just in case? And he'd be the first to say, why? Yeah. Why? Why are we all going to waste, waste time and waste energy? We've got it. It's brilliant. Yeah. And wow, there was this little bit. No one's, no one's going to care about that. By the time everything else is on, that's going to work or this is going to work. He knows when something needs to be redone and that's just for experience. And from growing up in the, in the industry with tape and no, you didn't have those luxuries. Yeah. Um, you had to make so a decision. He, Yes, yeah, so he's very much about making records based on performance and not fixing things, you know, just getting the performance right and, and when to leave it. He's brilliant at it. Having grown up with tape myself, and I have that element as well because you kind of just know when something isn't going to make any difference, when something does need to be fixed or when something doesn't need to be fixed. Bands, you know, they'll do a take and you can be on, you know, the second take could be the one. It's like you might go, well, well let's do another one, but try you might have an idea to try something just in case it's better if you do this or whatever. But after that bands can, and some producers I've worked with just, you know, chasing their tails for this, just second guessing themselves and not making a decision. And just because of that, and because they can going on and doing, you're on take 29, by which point everyone's tired, everyone's pissed off. Everyone's had an argument. Everyone's lost the will to live we all know that take twos is what well, I know that take two is the one and they want to take 29. And at that point, the band can't even get through a take anymore because there's so much information gone in their head. They don't know what they're supposed to, what is it that we're missing yeah. or what else. And then they, and they, they don't even get to the end of a take. Then all of a sudden on take 29, they get to the end of the song without making a mistake. And everyone's high fiving and going, Hey, aren't we brilliant? That's the take. We got it guys. We got it. But really, all that is is the take where everyone got to the end without making a mistake. And it doesn't have the magic of take two where there may be movement, maybe the odd little mistake, or maybe the thing that don't that doesn't matter. But everyone's forgotten what magic take two had because they've been through this whole process. Everyone's tired and everyone's time's wasted. And then you just make the decision based on the fact that you got a take. And then you listen to it the next day and you're like, oh, right, yeah, okay. And then, but it's wasted four hours, you know. 
there's no one when to move on. We haven't got months and months to make records anymore. So knowing when to move on, knowing when it's right. Yeah. And knowing what you can fix later, you know. Yeah, that's right, but don't worry about that. That won't, you know, I can sort that. That's fine. No, but if anyone if anyone out there wants to learn a bit more about production and engineers and how we do it and then uh we've got our production workshop coming up. Yeah. Um which is at Leaders Vale um, on the eleventh, twelfth and thirteenth of April. Oh, I believe. Um, still a couple of places left. We've got a few people booked on that. Yeah. There's still a couple of places um, left. That's going to be great. Yeah, um, it's going to be a um, website. If you want to find out more information, is www.sessionrecall.com forward slash leaders veil. And yeah, all the information, three day event, looking at like we'll see, talking about production, mixing, and a little bit of mastering. Next couple of episodes as well, what we'll be doing, like I think next week, we're going to be looking at mixing and how we approach mixing sessions. And then also mastering. A little bit of mastering as well, yeah. 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 So thanks very much, Nick. You're welcome, John. Yeah. And then if I magic, we might just happen to be wearing the same clothes in the next episode. Well, I, just for continuity, next week when we do the next episode, I'm going to wear the same things and I'm going to come back to Leaders Vale, yeah. fly back from Spain just so I'm sat here in the same place. Well, just for continuity. It looks good, John. I like this T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like the angle as well. It's a strong angle. You know, it takes a long time to get the camera set up. Yeah, I might, I might, yeah, I might have a slightly different angle next time, John. Okay. You know, I can't, I can't set it up exactly the same every time. Well, some say they can't, but yeah. <laughs> we know. All right, nice, nice one. Speak to you later.